0: Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard.
1: And I'm Lynn McTaggart.
0: And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. What Doctors Don't Tell You is a magazine. Uh, we've been publishing since 1989. It's also an award-winning website, wddty.com. So, yeah, we've got plenty to say about health and medicine. And so we're going to start this week with some uh, some news. And I think still very much in our minds right now is that terrible shooting in Florida. And, of course, it's still seared in the memory as the Sandy Hook, Columbine, and all the other atrocities. And um, researchers, when they've looked at this, have have found that in in around about 85 90% of cases, the perpetrator was on or was coming off of an SSRI antidepressant. And some people are beginning to suspect these drugs may be having a part to play. But the news this week is even more interesting because they're now discovering that the common everyday over-the-counter painkillers like ibuprofen, aspirin, uh, paracetamol, are also distorting our sense of reality and making us less empathetic to the pain of others. Now, This first came to light quite recently in a study from the University of East Finland, who looked at uh, the history of around about uh, 900 uh, people convicted of murder and compared them to 9,000 people who hadn't committed any crime and really expecting to see a strong link with SSRIs. But what astonished them was an even stronger link with these over-the-counter painkillers. An SSRI was maybe increasing the chance of them perpetrating a terrible crime by 30%, but taking an over-the-counter painkiller was more than doubling that risk. And you know, just to emphasise, these are painkillers we buy every day in the stores they are the aspirins and the paracetamols of this world you don't need a prescription and no one has ever suspected before that they're not just deadening pain they could be deadening our feelings towards others so the big question is has that played any part in, in these terrible crimes. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is the University of California have just picked up on this. They say, we don't really know. It's too early to say, but it's extremely alarming that there seems to be some connection going on here and one that no one's ever suspected before. And when you think that we're taking these painkillers in by the shed loads, millions and millions and millions every day for the least ache or pain, but it could be distorting our sense of reality.
1: I mean, it's really shocking that uh, that the regulatory agencies aren't looking into this further, because if you look at America and the UK and many other parts of the world, we are having an absolute epidemic of painkillers of every variety. I mean, in America, there's a huge opioid epidemic. And as Brian says, There have been some links between the shooters in many of these um, mass killings and SSRIs, the painkillers, the um, antidepressants like Prozac. Um, They definitely demonstrate in some of their literature it's mentioned from the drug companies themselves that they increase violence increase suicidal ideation that means increase somebody's propensity to commit suicide I was always interested in one of the most famous suicides of all Sylvia Plath and discovered that she was on another kind of antidepressant in the two times she tried to kill herself, the second time she was successful, that's never brought up. They talk about how troubled she is, how this and that and the other, and they never make the link with drugs. But with all of the major shooters, um, the latest one, in the one in Las Vegas, the guy was on some sort of antidepressant. Um, the people in Columbine, the students, they were on some sort of antidepressant, et cetera, et cetera, and it was over and over and over again a link between drugs. But as you say, what's really frightening is we're talking about the everyday painkillers that people take for headaches, and if this is the case, if they are altering your brain, and many women take them once a month, they'll take them for six days once every month, and. You know, many people who have um, uh, periodic and regular headaches will take them all the time. Mm. People with arthritis are taking, are living on those kinds of painkillers. Mm. And on and on and on, you can see what this is doing. Mm. You know, it could increase our propensity to violence of all kinds, not just walking into uh, a school and shooting, but also domestic violence. Mm violence of every kind and of course that it's out of control in the states. So this is another indication that essentially there's no such thing as a perfectly safe drug. Mm.
0: And it's interesting what you say about the um, autism and ADHD link because um, these same researchers from the University of California also looked at the painkillers and what they were doing to the, the the baby in the womb or who was being breastfed. And again, they found a correlation between mothers who are regularly taking painkillers. You yeah, know, and it's a common drug to take when you're, you're pregnant. And uh, a link between those taking the drug and the cases of autism, ADHD. And again, they found a correlation. You know, as I say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And that's especially true when it comes to taking a drug, even a supposedly benign, everyday over-the-counter drug, like the common painkiller.
1: Well, and I'm horrified at the kinds of drugs that are given pregnant pregnant women. Mm. You know, we should have learned our lesson with thalidomide, but women are being prescribed antidepressants. They're being given things like flu vaccines, mm. in fact, encouraged to get them and other vaccines mm. because they believe that will also inoculate their child. Mm. And things like painkillers. And the bottom line is, anything you take goes straight to the baby, the growing baby, and there's no such thing as a safe drug, so that's doubly true for unborn children.
0: OK. Next subject, one of your favorites, Lynn. Food and diet. <laughs> and what's interesting is that a study's just been carried out amongst older women, postmenopausal, as the doctors like to call them. And they've discovered that the paleo diet is the best for getting the weight off, but more importantly, keeping it off. They did a a small study, to be fair, just 70 women, half of whom were given the paleo. And I know, Lynn, you're going to explain the paleo in great detail in a minute for those who aren't entirely sure. And others who put on what's called the Nordic Nutrition Recommendations Diet, because that's where they were. And that was just eating sensibly. Uh, but but still included refined sugars and all the rest in that. But it's what doctors would call a balanced diet, which again is a, a long, long story on its own, but we won't go into that. So anyway, so the women on the paleo lost on average 20 pounds or nine kilos if you're European. And the women on the Nordic diet lost about 13 pounds or six kilos. But the real point was that two years on, the women on who'd been on the paleo diet still had the weight off, they didn't put it back on. And so it was uh, a case of eat what you like as long as it's within the you know, constrictions of, of paleo. So um, tell us a bit more about paleo and other diets, Lynn.
1: Okay, well, the paleo diet turns received wisdom on its head, essentially. Um, increasingly, forward-thinking nutritionists and integrative specialists in America and in other parts of the world recognize that uh, doctors had it completely wrong when they, had, when they were suggesting diets, particularly the low-fat diet. The belief was always that fat was a, a big culprit. So cut out fat and have lots of carbs, and any kind of carbs would do. Uh, what they're discovering is that people can't really process Um, a lot of the kinds of modern foods we've eaten. And the paleo diet is supposed to bring us back to what our ancestors ate. And that essentially is meats of all sorts, fish of all sorts, fats, all the healthy fats. And that includes all the things that were no-no before, you know, goose fat, beef fat, lard, butter. There isn't a bad fat out there unless it's a trans fat, a fake fat, essentially. So all of the Original fats um, and including omega-3 fats like, um, like fish oils are really good for you in any kind of qu- quantity. They're good for your brain. Vegetables, fruits, it usually cuts out dairy, although not always. And um, it usually cuts out grains of all sorts because grains and sometimes pulses have a thing called lectins in them, which are hard to digest. So all of them, and of course, it cuts out refined sugar of any sort. So with this kind of diet, your body isn't burning sugar anymore. It's burning, it's in the main, moving toward burning fat. The more strict you are on the diet, the more you are burning fat. But the point is that the body likes that. It stops cravings, it stops Um, hypoglycemia, that up and down thing with your your metabolism. And also, even athletes can run for far longer distances when they're burning fat compared to when they're burning sugar. Hmm. So the real interesting thing about paleo is, yes, you lose weight, you regularize your weight, but it also is being seen to be a wonderful curative For a number of illnesses, all of those inflammatory illnesses like diabetes and arthritis, et cetera, et cetera, which are all based on having too much sugar in the body. So once you get rid of things like grains and sugars and refined foods, which all convert into sugar anyway, um, your body starts working the way it was supposed to work. And a lot of those, as I say, degenerative diseases regularize. They're using paleo mm. now for for Alzheimer's. Mm. Um, they're using a very strict form of paleo, a ketogenic diet, for cancer. But more and more people are looking toward that as the way to shift autoimmune diseases, just about any any kind of diseases. So of course, it would it would stand to reason that you're going to go back to your ideal weight.
0: Mm. And of course, a little confession I think you need to make that Lynn is on the paleo diet. Yes. Lynn is a fully signed up paleolithic woman. She lives in a cave. <laughs> I, however, live in a semi-detached cave with an adjoining caravan where I go to occasionally have some pasta and some wheat once in a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm half, half-time paleo, but Lily Lynn is a fully signed up paleologist.
1: I am a fully signed up paleologist and I have another thing to say which is um, I now weigh the same that I did when I was
0: 25. Yeah. And you're now 27. This is it. How do you make a doctor go crazy? <laughs> you say the word homeopathy. And the thing is they say well there's no science behind homeopathy. There's no evidence that this works. at any Any good effect is placebo. In other words, you give the person a a homeopathic remedy and they'll start feeling better even though it's not doing anything. That's the basic line. The homeopaths on their part say, well, you know, you're trying to measure something that isn't measurable because you know classical homeopathy is a individual remedy for a specific person so you can't do these global studies in the way you can with drugs and even with drugs because they fit all the figures to make sure it does work but anyway that aside there actually has come out some interesting evidence for homeopathy it's a small study again but a very interesting one because it's actually been reversing vitiligo. Now, vitiligo, as you probably know, is a, is a horrible skin condition where it gets very, um, sort of, I mean, Matt is, you is, lose
1: it, pigment. Lose
0: pigment, yeah. So it's, and of course, there's nothing anyone can do about it. And medicine has no no answers at all. So they did a study amongst, it was small, 14, 14 patients. But over a course of uh, five years, their vitiligo completely reversed. And that's actually using classical homeopathy, which is probably one reason why it's such a small study. Because again, they were doing individual remedies. I'd love to say to sufferers, take this, it would do that. But this, the point was, it was classical. So therefore, it was an individual treatment for each person. So we can't suggest any particular remedy. But the point is, it worked. And conventional medicine has nothing that works. So... Put that in your pipe and smoke it.
1: (laughs) The big fallacy is that homeopathy has no evidence. Um, The Swiss were really interested in looking at homeopathy. They have a national health service, and they wanted to know whether or not their national health service should also fund homeopathy. So in order to do so, they needed some proof. So they set a team of independent researchers the task of looking at all of the evidence on homeopathy. And they found many decent studies demonstrating this stuff works, and it works in areas that medicine can't reach. So it's wrong to say that there's no evidence for it. And there's also the experience of individual doctors. Now, in the country where we live, in the UK, There are a couple of skeptics who are busy trying to ban homeopathy because they say there's no evidence for it and because homeopathy is covered to some extent on the NHS, the National Health Service. So the interesting thing that's happening is a huge backlash by doctors. There are many doctors out there, general practitioners, who probably in the absence of any conventional medicine doing any good, started working with homeopathy and found a lot of their patients were getting better with conditions of every variety. So they're all up in arms now saying, no, don't take this away from us. This is a really essential tool. So don't believe it when you hear there's no evidence for homeopathy. It's only that it doesn't fit the typical materialist paradigm that doctors, and we to some extent, have grown up with, thinking, no, it can't work. How can something that's so diluted work? Well, the other answer, too, is that even prestigious scientists like Luc Montagnier, the co-discoverer of the AIDS virus, the Nobel Prize winner, has been experimenting with this, with the idea of Dilution, super dilution of homeopathy, and he's found there are all kinds of quantum properties with water. So it's not just water; it's informed water. Hmm. And there's many other studies in physics, in ground breaking physics, demonstrating that water is essentially like a tape recorder. And once it is informed of another molecule. Even if the molecules no longer there, even if, even if it's been so diluted that there's no molecules left, it still retains a memory of that. So there is indeed memory of water. And that's essentially what homeopathy is.
0: Mm, very interesting. OK, to another subject related, I suppose. Folk medicine, traditional medicine. Yeah, it's known a lot of stuff for many, many centuries, even with various serious conditions. And in traditional medicine, ginger has always been given to treat cancer. And scientists have only recently started to look at this and they found out, you know what, it works. It's a very, very interesting series of studies that have been carried out quite recently into the properties of ginger. But at the moment, you know, traditional medicine people have been doing it for centuries, as I say, to an actual patient. Thus far, in terms of scientific medicine, I say with tongue in cheek, um, it's been laboratory trials. So they've been doing it on cell lines, cancer cell lines. But they're finding that even after just three days exposure to ginger extract, the cancer cells are dying. And what the ginger is doing is triggering apoptosis, which is cell death, which is what every healthy cell is supposed to do and of course what happens in cancer is the the cell keeps growing and enlarging and it's not dying and it's not picking up the signal to die ginger seems to be putting back into the into the process the that message of apoptosis now what they haven't done yet is to actually carry out full fledged trials on human patients but, you know, they're pretty optimistic that if they're seeing this in the lab and it's reversing this so quickly, that there's a pretty good chance they will see the same in the cancer patient. The problem always with these things is will they ever be given the green light to actually do it? Because they say, well, it's not ethical. You must give the cancer patient, you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy or whatever. You can't play around with this stuff. And so they very rarely get the the um, permission to carry out human trials, but yeah, there's loads of stuff like this that are out there. I mean, uh, in in a, f- I'll give, give you a bit of a sort of a sneak preview in in the next podcast. Even the essence from daffodils is reversing cancer, and again, this is goes back from to folklore medicine. They've known this for centuries, so finally, they are at least testing it.
1: Well, I think one of the big problems with cancer treatment and why it is so um ineffective essentially you know we hear all the time about its great successes but the bottom line is that the whole war on cancer is a failure i mean cancer incidences are up grow and grow and grow and chemotherapy has very very limited application in fact but medicine has this idea that for this kind of disease, this kind of serious, serious disease, we need the Armageddon approach. And so we need to, you know, we need to poison it or uh, cut it or burn it with radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or surgery. But what we're finding, and a lot of integrative specialists are finding, is that many of these natural s- Substances are far more powerful than nuclear war on cancer because they do the kinds of things in the body that reverse the problem of cancer. I mean, cancer is like a thief that's got in and been able to turn off the burglary alarm so that the immune system doesn't recognize it. And that's why it proceeds so quickly. And what many of these substances do is they put the lights on so the thief gets caught. And We, in our forthcoming issue of What Doctors Don't Tell You, we have a whole big story by two integrative specialists in America who deal with cancer and are using all sorts of natural substances intravenously with fantastic success. Uh, Not only things like ginger, but turmeric um, and many other things like that that are just natural substances. Mistletoe are all being used and used very effectively for cancer. Mm. Okay.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned um, at the beginning, we've been doing what doctors don't tell you since 1989. And I remember pretty early on, I can't remember the exact year, maybe 1994, I can't remember, a woman got in touch with us um, because she needed publicity out there because her 12-year-old daughter had died after taking Epilim which is a very nasty drug. Okay, it's dealing with a nasty condition, which is epilepsy. But even so, the figures seem to suggest this is not a drug that should be around. It's caused physical and neurological abnormalities in 20,000 children in the UK alone. And British MP Norman Lamb is campaigned to have the families properly compensated, and he's described the drug as an extraordinary scandal. It was introduced in the UK in the 1970s, I'm, I'm not sure about the US. It can cause physical abnormalities, and it causes autism and learning difficulties. And the reason why I'm talking about this drug today is because a new study has been carried uh, out into the drug, and they've found out that these same abnormalities including autism, ADHD, are passed on down to the third generation. These are people who are not taking the drug or being exposed to the drug directly. But it's almost like there's been a sort of genetic transfer down the line, which uh, makes this drug really one that is unacceptable. I would just quickly add one thing too, and that's worth bearing in mind. If, If you have anyone who's been um, diagnosed with epilepsy, is wrongly diagnosed in about 40% of all cases. Doctors get it wrong. So if you have had an epilepsy diagnosis, before rushing to take Epilim, get a second opinion. In fact, get a third opinion, because doctors just aren't correctly identifying this disease.
1: One of the big causes of seizures, believe it or not, is gluten. So patients are being wrongly diagnosed as having epilepsy when really what they are is gluten intolerant or possibly celiac. So that's one thing to test. If you've had seizures or your loved one has had seizures, check that out first. The other scandal of this is that there is a really good system for treating epilepsy already. It's dietary and it's called the ketogenic diet. Now this was known before paleo became all the rage. Um, And ketogenic is just a little bit more of a high fat um, meat-based or meat and fish-based diet with uh, low carbs. But this is found, that high fat approach has found to calm the brain. And that makes a lot of sense because We know the brain needs a lot of fat, it needs a lot of cholesterol, and that could be part of the issue too.
0: Hmm, question, do you know how much of modern medicine in terms of drugs and treatments is clinically proven to absolutely work and be of benefit?
1: Hmm, um... It's going to be something in the small double figures.
0: Well, it, the BMJ clinical evidence says it's about 30%. 30% of all drugs and treatments are proven to work and actually be of benefit. Right, The rest is dubious. But when you look at surgical interventions, that is even lower because they can't test it. How can you really do a double blind placebo on, with emergency treatments? You have to treat the patient. Right? Or he's going to die, or so they think. So they don't do a double blind placebo. So they don't actually know if a surgical intervention actually is helping. Having said that, they actually have done just that. They did do a placebo study into balloon angioplasty which is considered one of the great modern miracles of coronary heart surgery which where a balloon is catheter uh, or stent is is put into a coronary artery and widens it and pushes the fat to one side and it's supposed to be very very uh, efficacious for people suffering from angina but when they did this study and it's enormous uh uh, important study we involved 230 heart patients 105 of whom had this uh, treatment, and 95 had nothing done. They had a sham procedure done. God knows how they got this approved, but that's what they did. And they discovered that the um, recovery rate was exactly the same in the two groups, as indeed was the survive rate. They both survived equal lengths of time, about 10 years. And it didn't make any difference at all whether they had the angioplasty or they didn't which is a bit of a worry because that's what sort of um, heart surgeons do, really.
1: Well, not only do, but it's their cash cow. Um, that's one of the issues. I mean, when we've looked into angioplasty and stents before, we've found that there are a lot of scandals surrounding it. A lot of the stents don't stay. They have a kind of accordion effect at a certain point, And the angioplasties eventually get filled up again because you haven't really dealt with the problem you've just pushed back the fat as you say um and there are many other, many many other ways to treat um heart disease and they don't involve angioplasty stents bypass surgery or or any of the coterie of of medicine but this is so particularly interesting for the whole idea that as you say it's one of the few examples of where surgery is actually pitted against Something else, a a sham of um, procedure in a controlled trial. One of my favorite instances of that had to do with knee surgery, knee arthroplasty, which is you know cleaning out a knee that is supposedly arthritic. Um, They had a, a study in Houston. Um, where they had two sets of patients and one got the procedure and the other got a sham procedure where they were just opened up and nothing was done and then they followed them for a couple of years and both did really well and were pain-free in fact the people who had had nothing were even doing even better because they didn't have any complications mm. so it would be really great to sub to subject a lot of these surgical procedures we take for granted as being beneficial to some sort of test to see whether or not they're really doing any good and whether maybe just the idea, the thought that we're getting some help is just as good.
0: Hmm. will just add that this is really for people with stable angina who really could look at other options. but um, there's
1: a... We should say too that if they are interested in other options we've covered just about any alternative to heart issues in our book on heart disease. Um, we have a What Doctors Don't Tell You book that's out there in the stores and on Amazon on just this subject. So have a look at it if you've got any kind of issues.
0: Mm. And a word from our sponsor, What Doctors Don't Tell You. Um, don't forget to look us up in in the shops we're in America, we're in the UK and um, on the website wddty.com and thank you very much for listening I'm Brian Hubbard
1: great and I'm Lynn McTaggart and by the way we're not just in those two countries we're now in 17 countries around the world so it's nice to know that the message is spreading that there's something you can do to control your own health until next time